is the Roaring Elven podcast for the 26th of June 2018. A podcast for the Patrick Hedrick and the surrounding ecosystem for anybody working with or investigating big data and advanced analytics. My name is Jon, and here's my co-host, Dave. Hi Dave, how's the summer treating you? Hello Jon, the summer is treating me well. And yourself? <laughs> yes, yeah, same here. I mean, the uh, good thing working at Microsoft is the broken fiscal year, so it's end of fiscal now, so it's easy time. Not really. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Now is the time to recover before the next onslaught. Let's talk about news. That's what we're here for today. Let's talk about news indeed. Specifically, I think you're going to talk to us about data. Yeah, I have an article uh, by Pete Warden on his own blog. Mm -hmm. It was a good thing. It's uh, titled, Why You Need to Improve Your Data Training. Sorry, Your Training Data (laughs) and How to Do It. And it's a fairly lengthy article. It goes in pretty much depth. Uh, don't worry, I'm going to spend that much time on it as I did the last news episode. Uh, Dave has uh, chastised me for that, so I will not do it again. At least I'll try. But it's about something that I have a little bit talked about before, but never really been the topic of a discussion. And it's about when doing machine learning, there's two parts of the puzzle there. You have your data set and you have your model. And a lot of attention is always given to the model and not that much with the data because, uh, well, just throw in more data and it's perfect, right? There's a nice little picture at the top of the article here of a slide from, uh, yeah, it's been uh, yeah, Andres Karpati. They apparently talked about this at Train AI. And it's two pie charts, one with the, what the PhD thinks about. So that's the data scientist. And that's a mm-hmm. 90% model and a little little split for the data set and then at tesla which i'm assuming is the company tesla their pie chart is 75 percent data sets 25 percent models and it's something that's not not often talked about because talking about machine learning models is uh, that's that that's sexy that that's fun that's interesting my model is faster <laughs> than yours and blah and hyper tuning parameters and but in the end and that's what this article talks about is Quite often, by just looking at your data, and he has some statistics here, you know, statistics and lies, fidget tapes, whatever. But apparently, by just cleaning out a data set he used for some speech recognition things, he actually the guy actually worked for Apple and it's now at Google, if I'm not mistaken. But by just changing his uh, data set, the, 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 the quality of his data set, by removing sound samples that were truncated, silent, or just badly labeled, he was able to improve his model without changing the model 4%, going from 85 to 89%. And that's without yeah. touching the software at all. Just by providing better training data. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And not by, by adding training data, but just removing the badly labeled stuff, the things that throw off your model. Now this doesn't I'm mean. Sorry, I, think he, I think he did. He did add. He did add more data as well. So they went from yeah, sixty thousand clips before to a hundred thousand clips afterwards. But that was after, as you say, kind of removing the bad files, the the mislabeled error mm-hmm. error files, and things like that. Yeah. And a bit further, you'll see a little graph that shows that adding more data helps, but doesn't help that dramatically. But that's yeah. that's coming up. See, I, I want to go a little bit longer than just this. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, he also says, I'm confident I would have achieved a much lower improvement if I spent the time on modeling, the, 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 adjusting the model. Now, the thing is, you don't have to forget here that cleaning your data is an awful lot of work. It's mm. not easy, because if you have a million data points and you want to clean up your data, it kind of means you have to look at every single one of them and see if it's good or bad. 
Yeah. And the rest of the article actually talks about ways of doing this, ways of, uh, of, of, yeah, how do you do this cleaning of your data? And the first part he talks about is looking at your data. Just do some sampling. If it's text, uh, take a couple of snippets. If it's, uh, if it's pictures, he talks about going to his Mac and just in the viewer, having thumbnails, look at it, just to see if there's any obviously wrong stuff there. And yeah. that's an easy way of uh, making sure that thing works. Also, a bit uh, of a side lane, I would say, is pick a model fast. Don't spend very long choosing a model. That's just what he's saying here, right? And I've been saying that also. Particularly in machine learning, the models, the, the linear regressions, the, the random forest trees, that's been done. They're good. Don't try to ameliorate. Don't try to improve on the algorithms anymore. They're good. Just have a normal... There's a couple of things on the internet, a couple of places where you can find kind of a if this, then that schema of what model to use in certain contexts, certain situations, just follow that and take the one. By having the one that's slightly better, you will not get as much of a fee- uh, an improvement on the results than having a better data set. Yeah. Now he's uh, talking more about deep learning here. He's talking about TensorFlow models. So this is image recognition, stuff like that. And in this environment, I would say probably algorithms will improve further, but you will need an awful lot of engineering time and huge data sets to get that done. If you're just a consumer of artificial intelligence, if you're just a consumer of deep learning, that's what he's saying here. Just take the default model, you can download them and use it. And then something we've talked about before already on the show as well, use transfer learning to modify the model with a little data set that you already have. That's going to give you a much faster Uh, improvement. Now, if you want to have that 99 percentile perfect model there, okay, there's no way around it. You'll have to do everything yourself. Construct your own algorithm, do all the data cleaning, and then have your model there. Sadly, most of us in the real world don't have the time to do that. Other things he talks about, uh, he he calls it fake it before you make it, which is a bit of a misnomer, I think. But what he's (laughs) talking about here is basically don't start with the whole automated approach. What he uh, talks about here is how they, for for a certain thing, did everything manual first until they had a kind of playbook on how the model should work, label the data that way, and then use that stuff to uh, create your machine learning uh, algorithms, create your deep neural network and stuff like that. But he actually went himself through 2 million images and labeled them. Well, himself, his team. Yeah. And that if you have the time and effort, and the question here is a little bit, if you don't do this, will you still need to spend the time and effort to to rectify the problem after the fact? Well, in that case, spend the time in front by doing it properly first. Yeah. Again, having properly labeled data, it's a good thing. Uh, what else is he talking about? Yes, yeah, so talking about confusion matrix. Uh, anybody working with machine learning and uh, deep learning, if you don't know what the confusion matrix is, look it up. Uh, knowing how you recall and uh, precision is is a good thing. Uh, looking at your false positives, false negatives, it'll give you a good insight in how good your thing is. The problem with the confusion matrix is it's complete, completely, uh, how do you call it, aggregated, so you don't really see the... The, the, the by label misnomers anymore and that's why it has a little in, a little table there on top of uh, that part where he simply has a, a, a matrix of true labels predicted labels and then have a confusion matrix on every single label in itself 
Um, like it, don't like it, because if you have a lot of dimensions in machine learning, this becomes very unwieldy, very fast. And in machine, in uh, deep learning, it may show you that there's something wrong, but not really how you can make it right. But still, definitely worth something to look at uh, vis-a-vis your uh, data set. Uh, then it gives a nice example of uh, how Jaguar gets uh, badly labeled, because sometimes Jaguar is a, a little cat and sometimes it's a little car. <laughs> and what he's talking about here is doing a, a machine learning classification algorithm on top of your data set to just see if a certain label, typically if your machine if your algorithms works well, then they should be nicely clustered because they should all be in the yeah. same classification. And here it shows the example where you have yeah, two clusters of data, one point to the cat still and points to the Jaguar, which basically meant it was a badly labeled exercise, not because the images are badly labeled, they were all labeled correctly as a Jaguar. The problem here was that the label was bad. It should have been Jaguar cat and Jaguar car or something like that to differentiate yeah, yeah. those two. So that's this is not a part of bad data, but your labels are bad. Yeah, or at least not, not detailed enough for um, something to be useful in that in yeah that level well if it's not useful it's bad in my book <laughs> <laughs> anyway moving on uh he does talk in the next part about uh, always be gathering uh you can more data is always good and there has been some debate in the past and at a certain point uh, you shouldn't have more data anymore and that's also true but that's more of a diminishing returns thing and if you look at the little graph there uh, from 10 to 30 million you have a nice uh, increment but the further you go to the right the less you get for the same amount and don't forget that this is a uh, logarithmic scale so if you look at yeah. from 10 to 30, it gives you a better improvement than going from 100 to 300 million. Yeah. And that's a factor. That's not a multiplication. So again, but yeah, more data will pretty much always improve your stuff unless you're adding a very skewed data and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, if you have the storage layers and the storage capacity, no reason not to keep on gathering. But there is a certain point where it doesn't come, uh, how do you call that, uh, economically viable anymore. Yeah, but still, it will help you. Um, I, I had a nice R, a nice paragraph here uh, about the holy grail for every organization is to have a product that generates more labeled data naturally as it's being used, because doing that means that you can keep adding data without it costing you anything because it's pre-labeled automatically. And when I read this, I was thinking, "Yep, that's why we have Facebook, Pinterest, and Twitter." <laughs> <laughs> The perfect method of getting automatically labeled data. Yeah, or, or the old capture thing where people are uh, asked to label photos. That's pretty yep. much what it was, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, final part of the article, and that's the last thing I want to talk about here, is uh, um, a couple of um, suggestions to actually skew your data manually, to actually add bias to the data, because some stuff shouldn't be in there anyway. And, uh, yeah, fudging is always bad, of course, but there's two ways of doing this. And the one thing is that you might want to limit your data set by uh, removing data that is never going to be used in a model afterwards anywhere. And a bit higher, it gives the example of having, uh, I want to detect animals in the Borneo jungle. How many imaged la- images labeled penguin do I need? <laughs> Not very much, I agree. And... Sometimes this is very good, but do keep in mind that this will uh, void any chance of reusing this model in other, uh, other circumstances. In machine learning, typically you just rerun the stuff with other data and you'll have a new model. Deep learning, quite possibly you spent a lot of money building that model and the model is what it is. 
You can't just mm. add data and you, know, you, you can, Change but the you'll have to, yes, yeah. yeah, it's going to be more of an effort there. But uh, yeah, sometimes, and especially if you're looking at things where models are decent, uh, these days are running on your phone, they, you, they don't have that much memory, they don't have that much compute power, and having a smaller model there does definitely make sense. And if I'm in Europe, do I really need the US culture tainted, let's call it that, data? Probably not. But then again, who knows where the phone is going to be used? Uh, final example he also gives is for speech, for example, uh, take out swear words because probably if you have a if you want to train a chatbot, it has to be your uh, customer service representative. You don't want the, <laughs> the chatbot to be swearing every two words, <laughs> so that's a positive way of getting a better result, I guess. But uh, yeah, final thing here is uh, essential to learn from mistakes. Let's iterate, iterate. That's the whole thing about this thing. It never gets never gets done. Always keeps on uh, providing work for you, which is good. And, uh, oh yeah, the last sentence I don't really agree with. Uh, I'm constantly amazed at how well models work, even with deeply flawed training data, so I can't wait to see what we'll be, what we'll be able if we do our data sets uh, improvements. Uh, I agree with the sentence, but I think deeply flawed training data will give you a bad model, whatever you do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that's possibly somewhat overstating. A little hyper- hyperbole there, but uh, yeah. anyway, it's an interesting article. There's not that many articles out there about uh, data quality. And it's a uh, it's a nice read. It's it's interesting because the the focus, you know, when you're talking, at least when I'm talking to organisations, is always around the the expense and how difficult it is to get you know really good data scientists. Mm-hmm. When actually, it's it's not you know, those people are obviously critically important, but mm-hmm. they should really just be spending a lot more time on the more of the data engineering, data wrangling, data cleansing side of things that would give them far more, um, you know, far more bang for buck or ROI or whatever than, than kind of trying to throw more money at, uh, at the data science. Anyway, interesting article, uh, links will be in show notes as always. So, uh, let me know what you think over to you. All right. So moving from data science and models and training to modernizing Hadoop, reaching the plateau of productivity. Um, this is another uh, ZNet or ZDNet article. Um, this one is from George Anadotis, um, big on data. And here this is talking about really the the evolution of the Hadoop platform. Um, there's there's some some sort of the thing that caught my eye is this one is finally not saying that Hadoop is dead, unsurprisingly. Instead they're finally And it's also not saying, saying it's a new oil. No. No. Oh, <laughs> um, but they are saying that it has really entered what they're calling now in in, ter- in hype cycle terms the plateau of productivity. Um, so the fact is that you you don't hear so much about it because it's just it it's a core component. It's embedded in everything, and in the the same way as you you don't hear much about you know individual TCP/IP stacks. You know, mm-hmm. going back, that used to be something that you would add on to an operating system. The very fact that you would add network a networking layer onto an OS now is kind of crazy. They they all come with it. Why would, why on earth would you do that? Um, and this the the analogy that they're drawing is there is similar, although they do acknowledge that. 
it's not quite a sort of a one-to-one as the the technology itself is also still kind of moving on and accelerating. No, which is valid so, as well, right? The IPv6 yeah. anyway. Yeah, yeah, we're all IPv6 by now, surely, because <laughs> all of all of the IPv4 addresses ran out years ago. So yeah, you know, we must all be IPv6. Yeah. Um, so He's this is. <laughs> yeah. So this this moves on really into a bit more of a summary of um, some of the stuff from DataWorks Summit Berlin, and I don't necessarily, I don't really want to go into all of that because I think a lot of that has been, you know, we've we've covered on. Are summit sessions. Um, I don't think they they really draw too many new um, sort of dynamics. The one that I would say is towards the the tail end of the um, the article, they do mention um, sort of around things that are happening around GDPR and Atlas and Ranger mm-hmm. and ODPI. And they they talk a little bit about the fact that, um, and this is I think this is particularly relevant because of course we've had our, um, our or having our ODPI sessions on the podcast at the moment, but they talk about the fact that uh, they they didn't actually believe that ODPI you know ever got much traction, and uh, and you know Cloudera and MapR were not interested. That that latter part is certainly true. Um, Cloudera and Mapa were not interested in ODPI, but I would argue about um, ODPI not gaining much traction. In fact, they do acknowledge that obviously IBM have you know, moved away from having their own Hadoop distribution, but of course, multiple organizations did that throughout the course of ODPI. They are pivotal. Um, <laughs> did the same with with their uh, distribution, and there were a number of other examples where they've adopted an ODPI compliant solution, which in many cases ended up being HTTP. So yeah, as we've been talking about with John. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I, I think the it's, it's an interesting article um, more for the start, the initial intro piece of it, the fact that it isn't yet again, proclaiming that, uh, that Hadoop is dead, but actually seems to have a relatively enlightened view on it. But then from that point onwards, it's really more of a, a DataWorks Summit recap, in my opinion. Mm. It so, does yeah, have an image of a anatomically incorrect elephant, because that's not how you gallop. <laughs> it's just flying. Yes, flying, but with somebody riding it wearing a suit. Very strange. Very strange. <laughs> anyway, to uh, a relatively short uh, piece that just, for me at least, caught my eye. Um, it's a... Uh, an overops blog from uh, Takapi or Takapi. I'm not quite sure how it's pronounced. Um, and it, it's uh, we crunched one billion Java logged errors. Here's what causes 97 percent Hadoop. It is well. <laughs> I mean, we have we have mentioned before that, that there are obviously many things that Hadoop does incredibly well. Generating huge amounts of logs is certainly one of <laughs> and those a lot things of Java stack traces well. in there. <laughs> yeah, and that's it. The 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 amount of I mean I. I have a uh, a strong dislike of Java en- anyway, ah. and so the fact that the entire stack that I spend every day talking about is <laughs> is almost all entirely Java causes me some deep conflict <laughs> now and again. But the, the 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 blog for me was interesting because they they basically talk about the fact that after um, so th- there is a, a tool called um, 
called, well, I don't know what the actual tool, tool is called, but the company is called OverOps. They have some tools that are used for analyzing errors or exceptions thrown by Java applications. Um, and they, they basically distill down the top 10 um, Java errors. And they've got some really, at least in my mind, some fairly interesting um, kind of metrics, high-level aggregated, aggregated findings, like uh, a Java application, the average Java application generates about 2.7 terabytes of log storage per month. <laughs> That's just one application. It, con- it contains 53 unique errors per month. We'll throw 9.2 million errors per month. And it just it just goes on from there. And uh, as you said, Java stack traces... They're not they're not small things. So, if you could, if everyone could just go and fix like that three percent, uh, you know, the, the world would be a dramatically different place in my in my opinion. And there's a second blog article that then actually goes on to um, the different um, uh, sort of exceptions or the different errors and you know what they actually mean, how to fix them. Um, Somewhat unsurprisingly, even uh, not being a developer, uh, even I know that the null pointer exception is is seems to be the the most prolific, and indeed, um, across it's it's across seventy percent of production environments, and it is clearly the uh, the number one um, uh, sort of exception that that raises up. But the again, the, the article I think is really well written. Whether you whether you're a developer or not. I would thoroughly recommend you at least take a look at it. Um, and in fact, there is a, a even a, a quote from Sir Charles Anthony Richard Hoare, who was the inventor of the null reference. Um, he calls it his billion-dollar mistake, uh, the invention of the null reference in 1965. Um, so that's who you have to thank for the yeah. for a null pointer exception. Yeah, but how would you place it, right? <laughs> I mean, the only thing you can do is have uh, default values for everything, which means that a lot of a lot of people now use uh, exception handling to just throw a normal error. <laughs> yeah, and setting it to yeah. null makes sure that it's if nobody sets something there, it will crash, which is a safeguard, and that's how null pointers are being used or abused, I should say. Yeah. The I like the article. I mean, I have a development background. A long time ago, I was a programmer, but uh, I read I read through the whole thing in detail. I liked it very much. I do have a little bit of a nitpick here that they say just solve the null pointer ex- exception and 70% of production environments uh, won't have 70% less uh, errors uh, thrown. True, but you don't solve the null pointer exception. You solve all of the gazillion instances, instances of that of, null pointer yeah, exception yeah. being thrown in your code. So it's not that easy. Yeah. So it's a little bit of a, it's not of a simplification, easy. let's say. But again... I do like the fact that they, they do this. It's a nice list. Uh, the other one that says that the, the top 10 Java errors, uh, well, exception is in there as well. And yeah, most people, I'm guilty, we're too lazy. We just uh, we just throw an exception, exception, and that's happy. <laughs> yeah, and it's just... Uh, but it, it's, it's all about uh, code sanitization. That's the whole thing. Yeah, I, I hate any time that I have to go and dive into, into the... the the Java logs in any level of depth when I'm trying to troubleshoot something because I just know that I will spend most of my time just sifting through noise. Yep. Um, even with things like the uh, you know, Bari has uh, log search in there now, which is um, which is I think that that's now out of tech preview actually, and that's now fully supported, and that makes things 
significantly easier because at least all of your logs across all mm-hmm. the different platforms are consolidated, but you've still got a lot of noise yeah. to sift through. I mean, also a lot of Java programs, including Hadoop, have this idea of a normal exception. It's, it's just a warning. It's a notification. It doesn't really break anything. It's just, yeah, if we hit here, we give the exception. That way the programmer knows that we hit this uh, if test so tree, whatever. But that's okay. <laughs> and yeah, really yeah I mean, <laughs> that's just how people program, I guess. And yeah, it's a bit of a slight against open source development, perhaps, because a lot of Java stuff, uh, a lot of open source stuff is done in Java. And I guess we are very responsible for this. Uh, mm-hmm. <sighs> Oh, well. Let me say it this way. If you find an error, submit a git. Fix, fix it. it. <laughs> Seriously, if you find one, fix it. It's easy. Just throw an exception. <laughs> no. No. All right. Let's let's move on. I'm getting depressed. <laughs> um, yeah, let's go over the ocean hour. And I'm just going to mention this very quickly. It's uh, the, mm-hmm. well, it's my little thingy, announcement of uh, GDP, uh, sorry, GDP, <laughs> I've got GDPR in my blood now, of HDP. That's very close to GDPR, mm-hmm. actually. HDP <laughs> 2.6.5. Uh, just saw it in my mail pop up that it's out. So that's good. If you're on HDP, take a look at there. Uh, I always, when I see this pop up, I take a look at the new versions of the components in there. Uh, yeah. Don't see too many strange things. The um, Kafka 1.0 release is in there. That's new. Yep. And apparently also uh, Spark has gone to 2.3, which I thought it was already yep. at, but I was probably looking at tech previews. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that's yeah. Uh, that's interesting. That's interesting. But the even something thing I wanted to look at most most in detail here, because in one of the Berlin uh, Data Summit talks I, I went to, we actually went over this as well and that's a dip- deprecated components list yeah and there's a couple of uh, well-known things in there that are going away uh, apache falcon so as a public uh, service announcement <laughs> yeah just going over them so if you're going to move up that you are aware that these things are going away so if you're comp- if, if this is a component you're actually using then be careful apache falcon uh, which is something I actually liked pretty much because it was a, a, a improvement on top of uzi but it's being replaced by something new and I think uh, we'll be talking about that soonish in one of our next episodes. Mm-hmm. But uh, Apache Falcon typically being used in DR environments and a bit of data moving yeah. stuff. If you're using that, be careful. It's still there. It's deprecated in 2.6. That means already a while. But it's going to go away in, in 3.0. And my feeling, my gut feeling is a little bit that 2.6.5 might be the last release on the 2.6.3. And we might be moving very quickly to a 3.3. A 3.3. <laughs> I mean, there will still be there will still maintenance, be maintenance release, yeah, releases, yeah. But, but yeah, not big changes you, anymore. You could well be right. So yeah. that's the first one. Next one, this one surprises me actually. Apache Flume is going away, and I see how it's being. Rep- what you're you're surprised that it's still uh, in there? No, I mean I can see how Kafka and NiFi is a better choice in most of the things, but for some simple things, just doing a, a log watch or something on a file, Flume is easy. <laughs> But it's easy to add it again because it's just a jar. It's just a little application. If you need it, you can just take it from wherever and add it to your environment. That's a nice thing about Hadoop clusters. If you have an IaaS cluster, you have a a cluster on-premise, you can just take open source things like OCR libraries, machine learning libraries, things like Flume, and add it in again. And I guess it's okay that it's not in the standard distribution anymore because it does cause complexity for dependency testing and stuff. And I would agree that Apache Flume has 
there's not that much use anymore. Uh, it's 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 seen its peak, yeah. I think, and I think as, as you mentioned, kind of NiFi yeah. for the majority of the cases, NiFi has supplanted yeah. it for for a few other things, as you say, Kafka makes a better a better case yeah. for itself as well and i think both of those things that it's just newer technology newer yeah. newer architecture actually the, easier to tune easier to yeah. adopt and the, the article actually that uh, the blog post actually says consider hortonworks data flow as an alternative well that's nifi right it would be yeah. nice if that was yeah. put in there too next one apache mahout but uh, yeah that's normal that's already been gone for a while if you're using mahout you should have been on samsara for a while now the little comment section says mm. consider apache spark samsara is a plugin on top of spark which gives you the same thing mahout used to do so that's good apache slider going away i don't think anybody's going to lose sleep over that because i don't know anybody who ever used it instead of, except in just a little testing and it's not going away actually it's being ingested into yarn absorbed into yarn is the right word so that's good yeah, I mean the the majority of that functionality is already in, mm. you know, beyond, and certainly by by three will it will be completely subsumed in terms of that. So yeah, it just doesn't make yeah. sense as a separate project. And it wasn't easy to work with anyway. So uh, cascading, that's one I think of. Uh, that was still in there. <laughs> yeah, I I must admit I thought that cascading had been deprecated a while yeah, back. Yeah. Um, Me too. But yeah, it's, and to be honest, in all the time I've done this, I've never touched a cascading. Yeah, I I know of a handful of organisations that have dabbled with it, but I don't know of anyone that's that's using it particularly mm. seriously. It's one of the things that was at the at the, the birth. It's the same with the, the MapReduce library, but uh, it it got yeah, th- other things, better things came in, in its place, I guess. And the final thing on the list is Huey uh, finally being removed. Con- considering body views as an alternative, is Huey an open source project these days, or is it still closed source? It is. It's it's a. It's not Apache, right? I believe it's, it's open. Yeah. No, it's not. It, so it's it's open source closed community, yeah, yeah. which is a bit of a sad thing. Because if I, I still think if I put this on Apache, the, I mean, Ambari at the moment is pretty much alone in the space, which is bad for competition. Uh, what is yeah. likely if you had a bit of bit more of a real open source uh, open community environment community behind just it. to have that uh, leapfrogging you know it's always a good thing anyway yeah definitely acp 265 if you're on acp take a look at it you should already have been notified by that i guess i don't see any huge different uh, huge changes for now but uh, yeah 3.0 will of course be more invasive Indeed. Uh, what's the time like? Uh, yeah, let's make it a short one this time. Uh, I think I had one or two more articles about the same thing. Uh, it's a couple of blog posts from uh, Hortonworks mm-hmm. about uh, the containers on Yarn. I'm not going to go into detail. I'm just going to shout out that these uh, articles are coming out. Uh, Hadoop 3.0 will have a lot bigger integration with uh, Docker and even Kubernetes at some point. So if you're deep into Hadoop, it's definitely something to look at. Uh, Yarn, I think we both agree, is a core part of any Hadoop cluster. Should be. And there will be some changes in that point. Uh, I've had people already ask me, okay, will Kubernetes uh, replace Yarn? And I think one of the blogs actually has a question below it asking if Yarn is now the same thing as Mesos. Yeah, what's the difference between this and Apache Mesos? <laughs> yeah, so. that's the, that's one of the comments on the article. Which, I mean, the, let's 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 give, or at least let me give my thoughts on that. Okay. Um, so 
The difference between uh, something like uh, Mesos and what we're talking about here is is Mesos is a general purpose yeah. um, container management platform. That's that's not really what what Yarn is is focused on. Yarn is specifically around containerized applications that specifically integrate with a lot of the underlying data on a data lake. Now, the majority, I would guess, of an organization's containerized applications would not necessarily have anything to do with that. They would be passing, shuffling data in between them, dealing with atomic interactions, and you know, not necessarily have a great deal to do with the data. But if you have applications that specifically pull and push a lot of data to and from you know your organization's data lake then we always talk about on on Hadoop and big data process the data where it lives and that's all we're really doing here is bringing the applications closer to the data and so rather than spinning up a separate mesos environment and all of the complexity that that in, ensures you know why not spin your applications up on top of on top of the Hadoop environment where the data already exists. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Yarn is just something that's embedded in, in Hadoop. It knows what Hadoop does. And you could add all that functionality to Mesos as well, but what you're doing then is actually is actually rebuilding Yarn. <laughs> yep, indeed. And I also like the fact that they ask about Mesos and not Kubernetes. Because in Team? my, well, in my experience, uh, Mesos has been diminishing in popularity. Yeah. Uh, so Kubernetes, uh, for all good and bad, is the the flavor of the month. Let's say. So I see everything going that way at the moment. Yeah. And uh, I, I also I, I would like people to stop saying K eight S because that just drives me mental. K8S. Kubernetes is not that long a word. Internationalization, you know, I I I eighteen S is it? Um, that makes sense to me. Um, but uh, but. But please, please don't go just shortening everything to first letter, digit, last letter, because that will make everything really, really difficult to understand. <laughs> I'll do my best, D. D, D, 2, E. After D, 2? I'll be C, 3, P, O. I like that guy. <laughs> anyway. Maybe C, 3, P, O is actually an abbreviation. Anyway, yes, as you say. Uh, these two uh, I'm talking about now actually are part of a six-part blog series at the moment. So, again, the whole uh, scheduling. A lot of people are asking questions. I don't think the last word has been said about it yet. And I think that once it actually hits uh, development and production clusters, it will still change. Oh, yeah. And uh, I'm not oh, sure yeah. if it's going to remain or not. It's evolution. Exactly. And as it talked, Slider disappearing. Well, when Slider came out, it was the holy grail that's going to solve all our problems. And uh, two, three, four, five years later, it's gone. I have no idea where this is going to end up, but I do know that containers are here to stay. Yeah. And they will stay in some shape or form. And how it's going to work out, I don't know. But um, I know we had a discussion on how you could use containers. We did the Data Summit show indeed, where it's you yeah. should see that's something that augments your cluster. Don't start a Hadoop cluster to run only Docker containers. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And if if you if you don't have if you don't have or need a uh, a data lake or a big data platform, it, that would be crazy. You know, why, why on earth would you do that? Go go for go for Kubernetes. Because elephants are fun. That is true, and we do spend a lot of time talking about them. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
that is for me. Uh, a quick uh, other thing. I, when I was looking at your article, I actually clicked on one of the links there about the, uh, the don't hear much about TCP either. And that actually links to a Data Nami article about uh, hate Hadoop. Then you're doing it wrong. <laughs> it's a bit an older one from July 31st, 2017, but sounds like something you should read too. Ah, <laughs> uh, brilliant. Yeah, yeah. I, I, hmm. I wonder whether this is one that we did cover back in the day. I don't think it is. I think that's it. Uh, doesn't ring true to me, no. doesn't ring any bells to me either. Okay. Maybe we can have a, a retro news section <laughs> where we pick old, old news articles and talk about them. <laughs> the old news show. I'm not sure that's going to have a lot of listener attention. <laughs> uh, it's a retrospective. It's, uh, it, yeah, it's retro. Retro is cool. Retro is cool, yeah. <laughs> Whatever. Well, I think, unless you have anything else... Uh, nope, you told them to keep it short, so I'm listening this time. Wow. I have the power, <laughs> people. Don't get used to it. No, definitely not. In that case, that is about all the time we have today. We hope you enjoyed this serving of truly bite-sized big data. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode, but until then, please go to www.roaringelephant.org where you can find more information, including a feedback form. You can also follow us on Twitter using the at Hadoopcast tag and contact us by email on podcast at roaringelephant.org with any thoughts, comments, criticisms and other feedback. Until then, my name is Dave. And my name is Jay. Jay2N. <laughs> and we look forward to talking to you next week. <laughs>